We're going to be continuing on in our series, Courageous, as we're working through the book of Joshua. And, and before we jump into the text today, I have a question for you. Do you believe that your life impacts the life of others? I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a simple question, but do we believe that we're all interconnected, right? And I think now, more than ever, uh, I'm going to go ahead and use the, the, the C word once. I mean, COVID has shown us how connected we are, hasn't it? Right, the impact of being in, in uh, close proximity to others and, and how we're connected in that way. Well, as I was trying to find who is the person that had the greatest impact or one of the people that had the greatest impact, the most lives that were changed by a, by a single person. There was names of doctors and, and politicians that came up, but there was also a name of a guy that came up that arguably years ago saved the world. You may have heard of him, maybe, maybe you haven't, uh, but I'd like to share his story with you as we start off before we jump on our text today. You see, it was actually this guy. Uh, in 1983, in the height of the Cold War, there was this guy named Stanislav Petrov. He was stationed in a radar station for the USSR, and his job was to report to higher-ups if there's anything that ever showed up on those radars. Well, in 1983, in September of that year, all of a sudden on his radar, something showed up. Not one, not two, but five missiles from the United States showed up on his radar, and it appeared that they were headed to Moscow. Petrov sat, sat there petrified. He didn't know what to do. He said he was frozen in time, and his rules were that he needed to report to his higher-ups what he saw, but what he said later was that there was no specification around how much time he could take to contemplate if the threat was real or not. Well, at this point, for him to see those five shadows on his radar, it had already passed through 29 or 30 different stages, and this seemed to be verified that there were missiles headed towards his country. And he knew if he was to pick up the phone and to call his higher-ups that there would be no question in his mind whatsoever that the nuclear arsenal of the Soviet Union at that time would descend upon the United States. And then there would be a nuclear war between the two. No longer a stalemate, no longer a cold war, but a hot war that would end in much devastation and loss of life. For whatever reason, and he says he can't explain it, he said it felt like a 50-50 shot, but there was a gut instinct in him that, that said this couldn't be right. Why, why just five missiles? If they were going to shoot, they would shoot more missiles than that. And so he picked up the phone and he did call. And he didn't report that missiles had been fired, but he reported that there was a malfunction. And 30 minutes later, when Moscow was still standing, because that was the time it would have taken for the missiles to get there, he knew he had made the right call. Now, this one man, you might not have known, but many of us owe our lives to him, making the right call at that time. One man and his decisions could impact many, many others. And as we look at our text today in Joshua, we're going to actually see a man in the midst of the camp of Israel and his decisions and the impact that it made for all the Israelites at that time. So if you would, you can go ahead and grab one of the chair Bibles or a Bible that you may have or online. Go ahead and uh, open up to Joshua chapter 7 and 8. And again, if you don't have a Bible and you're here this morning in person, we'd love for you to take that Bible with you as our gift to you this morning. And we're going to be hanging out. I'll just let you know. We're going to be mostly in chapter 7 today and working through this text together. And there's a lot of it. So let's go ahead and jump in. So Joshua chapter 7 in verse 1, it says this. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, 
of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So already in the text, we're seeing something that Joshua and the people of Israel don't yet know. We're getting the inside scoop of what's happening. What all is about to follow stems from this. Because if you don't recall, last week we talked about the Battle of Jericho in this miraculous way that God showed up. And the commander of the Lord's army was there. The walls fell down miraculously. And at the end of chapter 6, it says that the fame of Joshua and God spread. And then it starts off this way, but, and that's not a good but. The fame of God spread, the fame of Joshua spread, but the people of Israel broke faith. And that the anger of the Lord burned against not just the person who had broke the, the, uh, the law, but burned against the people of Israel because they were interconnected. And so here Joshua is on his campaign. They won in a miraculous way in Jericho, and then it jumps into what's happening next. Joshua tells a couple spies to go on to the next city. The next logical city is Joshua and the Israelites are trying to divide the whole promised land, separate them. He's at Jericho. They're moving on to this city called Ai. And so his spies go, go out to this, the city of Ai, and they come back, and they return to Joshua, and they say, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. I mean, in this, we get a tone of confidence from these spies, don't we? Maybe pride, but we can't really speculate that much. It doesn't tell us that, but they're, they're confident that this is a small city. It's not like Jericho. We don't need to send up the entire army. We don't need to send all of the men just send two or 3,000. It's, it's going to be a small thing. It's an easy victory. Let's go ahead and send them up. And so Joshua listens to his spies. And so about 3,000 men went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of the men and chased them before the gate so far as Sherebim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now, this is interesting here that it actually accounts for how many men died. That's almost as to say that in the Battle of Jericho, not only did the walls fall down miraculously, but there's no accounted for deaths on the part of Israel. And here in this defeat and them fleeing, 36 men who went up, who left that morning, who said goodbye to their wife and kids, didn't get a return back home, that they died, and they also died in defeat. And so the hearts of the people of Israel who've already seen God do miraculous things, providing for them in the desert, parting the Jordan, having the walls of Jericho fall down, and now all of a sudden, seemingly that God has taken his presence from his people, and then this simple battle that should have been an easy victory for them, they're defeated. And using similar language to how all the people of Canaan and the Amorites were described as their hearts melted as they heard about Israel, as they heard about the Jordan parting, that now the Israelites are taking their turn and their hearts are melted. And they're wondering, where has God gone? Where is he? He's shown up in all these miraculous ways. He was with us, and now seemingly his presence has been pulled from us. So Joshua tore his clothes. He fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord, until evening, and he and the elders of Israel put dust on their heads. They're coming before God, distraught and concerned about where is God's presence. Lives were lost, the battle was lost, and the morale of the entire nation is now in jeopardy. 
And Joshua asked God a few questions. As he's there and he's before the presence of God, Joshua asked, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? They didn't need to cross the Jordan, God. Why did you bring us here if you're going to destroy us? Oh, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And we hear Joshua's concern. Now the word's going to spread much in the same way the word spread about the Jordan party, much in the same way the word spread about Jericho falling in a miraculous way. The word is going to spread. God's not with Israel. Israel can be defeated. And the enemies were going to be emboldened to surround them. But then Joshua asked what I think is the most important question in this conversation with God. And he says, and what will you do for your great name? God, you've tied your name to these people. God, you chose the people of Israel. And so for us to be disgraced, for us to lose, now, now what is, are these heathen nations going to think about you, God? It's one thing for Israel to be cut off, but now what is going to happen to your name? God's response is amazing. God, the Lord says to Joshua, get up. He's essentially saying, stop praying, get up, get the dust off your head. Why have you fallen on your face? Because Joshua doesn't yet know at this point that Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. And these heavy words that follow, I will be with you no more. I mean, you can just feel the weight of that as, as God is talking to Joshua. Here, Joshua, here's the deal. You don't know it yet, but there's sin in your camp. And unless you do something about it, I'm not going to have my presence among your people. And God tells him, unless the devoted things are destroyed, and, and taken from you, God's not going to be with them anymore. And so what exactly is God talking about here, the devoted things? If we look back just one chapter, the very first battle that's taking place, God tells Joshua and all the people that Jericho is supposed to be set apart for God. Everything, every man, woman, child, every animal is supposed to be destroyed, and then certain things are devoted to God and supposed to be taken into his treasury, as we talked about last week. And God tells them, but you keep for yourselves the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make them, the, the camp of Israel, a thing for destruction and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord, that all the, these precious metals belong to God. And then interestingly here, again, we see that this is communal, it's collective. That if anyone, if any soldier takes anything that belongs to God, it's not only on their head, but it affects the entire nation. There is this ripple effect that they are judged as one. And the whole camp of Israel will be brought to destruction. As we see, as the whole camp of Israel, now their hearts are melted, and 36 men lose their lives. So in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and then tribe, uh, and then and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by the households, and the households of the Lord that takes shall come near man by man. 
So God has this entire nation. Joshua doesn't yet know that there's sin in his camp. God's saying, there's sin in your camp. There is a sinner in your midst. And rather than God just telling them the name, the person who is trying to keep the sin hidden, now the whole nation knows it. The whole nation knows that something's wrong when 36 lives have been lost, but now they know something's wrong when they all come before Joshua and he's trying to narrow down where is the sinner at. It is arguably the worst lottery if you're just getting your number called. Or this morning if I was like, okay, there's a sinner in our midst, I think it's in this section. In row three, see, no, oh, okay, that's just Ron. Okay. Um, but there's a sinner there, and you can imagine, so now there's a sinner that is in the midst that had broken this thing that God had said, do not take these devoted things. Now the whole nation, the thing that he was trying to hide, keep in secret, is becoming known to everyone in Israel. And so lots are called. And they call out one by one and find out who he is. And then this is the punishment that God says has to come. And he who has taken the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. I mean, this is heavy, isn't it? He stole something. He stole something. He saw something he wanted and he took it. I mean, how many of us have looked upon something that is not ours and we desired it? Does that include everybody in this room? And then everybody online? And so, so there's someone in the midst who simply coveted and then followed through with the act of coveting and stole something that belonged to God. And God says this has no place in his people and that it is so detestable and angers the Lord so much that it, this sin and this person need to be cut off completely from the person of Israel, that God's wrath needs to be poured out on this person as they are found. And so Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken, and then the clan was taken, and then the family was taken, the household, and they finally landed on the man. The man was Achan. Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. At this point, does Achan think he can hide it? I mean, there's something inside of our nature that we believe somehow, some way, there are certain parts, there are certain corners of our life that we can keep hidden from others and foolishly that we think we can keep hidden from God. And we know this to be the case because it happened at the very, very beginning with the very first sin of Adam and Eve. As they looked upon the forbidden fruit and they coveted and they took their next response as they heard God walking is they hid. There's something inside of our nature that we want to recoil and hide and keep the dark things and the hidden things to ourselves. But Joshua presses him and says, don't hide it. There is no hiding anymore. God has supernaturally shown in an entire nation of up to two million people that you are the person who sinned. And now tell me what you have done. And Achan answered Joshua. And he answers correctly. He says, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar and about 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold that weighed 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them 
And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan's of the tribe of Judah arguably would have been one of the very first people to go into Jericho. The walls fell down. Achan was likely one of the men that walked around silently for six days and then shouted on the seventh day. And as he shouted, the walls fell down. And as he went through and cleared the city and cleared households, that his eyes got caught by a cloak and some silver and gold. And by some estimates, this would actually be arguably about $800,000 of worth that Achan had set his eyes on and that he knew to be God's and not his. Yet, somehow, as a, as a room cleared, as others went on continuing to clear the city, Achan saw these things, and more than just in his heart he coveted them, that he took the next step and he grabbed these things and took them in his own. And then what I find to be somewhat ironic is he hides them inside the earth, in his tent, trying to keep it hidden from others and hidden from God, but hiding it in the earth, the very land that God has promised to them, the very promised land that he's now stepped foot in because God opened up the Jordan, that he opens up that earth, the promised land that God has given him and all the Israelites, and he's trying to hide from God the things that belong to God in the promised land of God. Do we see how foolish it is that God knows everything? That there is not one thing that God doesn't know. He knows our, our coming in, our going out, our standing, and our sitting, our sleeping. God knows everything. That there is nothing that can be hidden from him. And Achan does the right thing finally. He had opportunities. If you think about it, he saw the things, he brought them home, he dug a hole in the ground. I mean, when he heard the report that 36 men came home, maybe a neighbor of his came, didn't get to come home from I. That he's dead now. That there are 36 widows in Israel. There are 36 families that no longer have fathers. Did Achan, in his heart, then think, maybe this is because of me, maybe this is because of my sin. But rather than coming forward and bringing all of his darkness into the light, he hid. He recoiled. He didn't step forward until God brought him forward. Joshua brought him forward. So his confession is not necessarily one of repentance, but it's of being caught. So Joshua sends messengers to, he, to check it out. They ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath, and they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel and laid them down and before the Lord. The thing that he tried to keep hidden in his tent was now before Joshua, the leader of Israel, now before all of Israel, the thing that he didn't want anyone to know about was now finding them out. Actually, it says in Numbers 32, 23, be sure, be sure your sin will find you out. If there's any question in your mind, if your sin will find you out, your sin will find you out. God knows, and sin will have this way, God will have this way of bringing it to the surface. And so they lay these things in front of Joshua, and Joshua and all of Israel took him, Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had all of his earthly possessions, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said to him, why did you bring this trouble on us? You can imagine Joshua almost pointing to 36 graves. Why did you bring this trouble on us? Why did you bring this to us, Achan? The Lord brings trouble on you today. 
And all of Israel stoned him with stones, they burned him with fire, and they stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. And therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Achor. Valley of Achor meaning the Valley of Trouble. That trouble had been brought upon all the people of Israel by one man's sin. The impact of one man's sin being so far-reaching to infect an entire nation. To affect 36 families. To have the Israelites' hearts melt because of one man's hidden sin. And then most importantly, that God's anger burned towards him and towards the people because of one man's sin. This is heavy, isn't it? And it's hard for us to understand, but in, in front of a holy and righteous God, when he gives a law, when he gives a command and tells the people, this is what I want you to do. These are the things that belong to me and that we steal from him, that we take from him. When Achan takes from him, that he sins against God and he sins against all of his people. And there's this profound effect from his sin that infects the whole nation. And God wants no place of sin in his camp. And so he quickly and fully cuts it off so that there is no more sin in his camp and that they can go forward because this is the, record, the only recorded defeat of the Israelites in the book of Joshua. That they've gone from this miraculous victory in Jericho to this defeat in Ai and it's because of one man's sin and the effect that it had. So this morning, that raises the question for us. What is sin? It's something we talk about but I just to unpack this concept a little bit because it's something we talk about was something we need to dive into just a little bit to recognize. There's original and there's actual sin. And the actual sin is the stuff that we think about. When we lie, covet, cheat, when we have anger, when we have lust, those sorts of things, when we, those actual sins that ha- take place out there, but there are, there's something that happens when each of us is born. As actually David writes in the Psalms, it's that we are born in iniquity. We're all born sinful. And if you don't believe it, I have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a (laughs) six-month-old. And if you want to watch them anytime, there is original sin. There is nothing that needs to be taught. It's ingrained. There is a sinful nature that we're born with. I actually thought it was a little silly, but just the other day we were at Pastor Tim's house, and my oldest grabbed an extra cookie and tried to hide behind a houseplant. I didn't tell him he couldn't have another one, but there was something inside of him that said, oh, this extra cookie? Well, maybe dad doesn't want me instead of asking. I'm just going to try to hide in plain sight. But there's sin that we're all born into. And then there's this actual sin, and again, we have to unpack this a little bit more because it's every thought, it's every word and deed and desire that is contrary to the will of God. I'll be honest with you, word and deed, okay, right? If you said it, you said it. If you did it, you did it. But when Jesus shows up on the scene in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, if you've looked upon anyone with lust, you've committed adultery. If you have anger in your heart towards someone, you've committed murder. He just changes the game. Now all of a sudden, it's not just what I say and do, but what I think, what I feel, what I desire. Okay, now we've just piled on a whole bunch more sin that just lives between our ears, didn't we? And so for any of us, that if we were trying to fool ourselves, into just trying to control our behavior and play whack-a-mole with sin. We can't do it. That inside of us, there's this sinful nature that we are born with and that we live out 
in our thoughts and our words and our deeds and our desires. We spoke of Adam and Eve earlier, and Romans actually speaks to this, that that it's through one man. One man had all this effect. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Through one action, one slip-up, one mistake, one sinful action has now led to all this devastation and this infection of sin that we have in our life. It has this impact. It made me think of this, as uh, my wife sent this to me just last week. They collected 1,200 cereal boxes to give away at my son's school, and then before giving them away, they actually just lined them up to do dominoes with them, right? It's just because, because you can, because it's a fun grade school thing to do. But it, it raises this question for me, how far-reaching is our sin? How far-reaching is my sin? And how far-reaching is your sin? What has been the domino effect of sin in your life? Have you, have you stopped to think about it? Because it's not a comfortable thing to think about. The negative impact that each of us has made with our own sinful thoughts, words, actions, and desires has led to a ripple effect in our own lives and that we cannot fool ourselves into believing that we are islands unto ourselves and that sins and certain sins can just be kept to ourselves and hidden underneath the tent and it has no effect on anybody else. But that sin in your life not only affects you, but it affects your loved ones and your families, it affects the people that you work with, that the sin in our life has no place. And the same holy and righteous God, who is the God of Israel, is still our God, and he wants sin to have no place in your life. He wants it to be cut off, and he wants to set you apart. And the problem is, how do we do that? Because we do try to play whack-a-mole with our sin, and, and when we look at it, and we go, there's original sin, Ben, so what do you want me to do? Like, I've sinned, I've had an impact on people, I've had a negative impact on those in my life with my sinful desires and thoughts and actions. And how do I come to terms with those things? That through one man, through one person, that we have had such a negative impact. Well, the good news is this, that just a few verses later in the book of Romans, it says in verse 17, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That if sin could come through and infect and affect all the people of the world, that Jesus' righteousness now can be ours through his one act of righteousness, through his willingness to humble himself in the form of a human to take on the penalty that all of us deserved. And now we have access to the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. The free gift. It's free. But we recognize this too. While it's free for us, it was costly for him. In the book of Isaiah, it says, this is how we have access now to this righteousness. It is because he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It is through Jesus' suffering, innocent suffering, death, and now resurrection that we have access to a righteousness that, that we really don't deserve. 
this free gift that we simply just receive and we take hold of it as ours, but it was his through that one man. And that by his grace, I stand before you, not with a pile of stones on my head. And I know for a fact that you who are sitting out there or those of you that are watching online, that you also don't have a pile of stones on you as Achan was crushed under stones because of the weight of his sin. And that we can toss off that weight now. That through Jesus we have access to his grace and his righteousness and that we don't need to walk around with our heads hung low knowing the full weight of our sin and the impact of our sin on our own lives and the lives of others. What we have to do is simply this. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This morning, recognize this. You have sin. Don't trick yourself. Don't pretend like you don't. Feel the weight of it. And then from that place, we're able to come before God. And if we confess our sins, that he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the verse that our kids are going to be talking about in SG Kids today. And I can't think of a better verse. This reminder of the grace and mercy that is freely offered to all of us and that we come before God recognizing our broken and fallen sinful nature humbled before God, knowing that in and of ourselves there's nothing that we could do to be brought close to him. But he sent his son to us, and now all we have to do is call him Lord and confess our brokenness and our sin, and the righteousness that was Jesus is now ours. And so, for you this morning, we have this amazing gift that we're going to experience in a little bit, that is communion, where we actually get this gift of grace and experience mercy in the very body and blood of Jesus, that we get to confess those sins. If there's sins that are hidden underneath your tent or sins that are out in broad daylight, that we recognize those, that we no longer call them good, we call them bad. We confess them before God, and we recognize that his blood washes all those things away. And moving forward in the story of Joshua, just to touch on it quickly, because I think there's still value in this, to talk about chapter 8. That now God's wrath has been pulled away. The sin had been cut off. God's wrath had been poured out on Achan. And for all of us, God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus. But as God's wrath had been poured out on Achan, he'd been cut off from the nation of Israel, the Lord comes back and says, do not fear, do not be dismayed. God's back on their side. Take all the fighting men with you. Arise and go to Ai and see I've given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, his land, and you shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you may take as plunder for yourselves. Lay ambush against the city. Chapter 8 goes on to explain the ambush. But there's, there's value in touching on this. The very thing that Achan coveted, the very thing that he wanted, the spoil of the city of Jericho, if he had waited a matter of days, a matter of days, the God who provides would have provided. The thing that he wanted was in the city of Ai. The thing that was in Jericho was God's. And so for us this morning, that reminder of that if we're coveting, if we have that evil in our heart, that evil intent, that hold off. God's going to provide for you in the way that God's going to provide in the time that he's going to provide. If Achan simply waited, then he wouldn't have brought all of this destruction and loss of life to Israel. And so they go forward and they take it. And then afterwards, as God, God and, and Joshua are renewing their relationship, Joshua makes an altar, 
has a sacrifice, and then before the entire nation, afterwards, after the winning the battle of Ai, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses according that is written in the book of the law, and there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners that lived among them. The reason I share this with you too is that this is it. This is how we know both our sinful nature, our total depravity, and then we also see our Savior. When we look at his word, when we gather together and assemble here at church and we're reminded of God's goodness and his holiness, then we're reminded of our own sin. As you spend time in God's word, that you can hold it up as a mirror to yourself and you see God's perfect standard and you see how you and I, how we fall short and that we don't measure up. But at the same time, as we hold up that word to ourselves and we see our sinful nature, we also see our Savior. So as Joshua did this before the nation of Israel so they could be reminded, this is what God's commanded. This is how we're supposed to live out and be a holy nation. That us today, the, the, the same remains true. That we are supposed to hold up God's word to ourselves, see our sinful nature, and at the same time, see our Savior. And receive that free gift of mercy and grace and that righteousness that he offers through his Son because the wrath has been poured out on him and it doesn't need to be poured out on us because we are in right standing before God. Will you guys pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. And God, thank you for the reminder this morning, even if it's uncomfortable, of the depth and the effect that our sin has not only on our own lives, but on the lives of those around us, on the ones that we love the very most. God, forgive us when we fall short time and time again of your perfect standard. God, thank you for the grace that you freely offer every single one of us. God, I pray for those in this room and those online that if there is sin that needs to be brought to mind, that you would do so this morning, God. That we could come before you with all our brokenness, the sin that we've committed, that we know about, and the sin that we don't even know that we've committed, God. And that all those sins are covered by your grace and mercy. And that through this gift of your son and through the gift of communion that we are reminded and experience yet again your grace and your mercy this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.